few weeks ago, I heard the buzzer ring downstairs in where I live. And I don't have an intercom, so I have to go downstairs every time the doorbell rings down three flights of stairs. And, you know, it's always a surprise who's there. <laughs> so this time I went downstairs and opened the door. It was kind of a, a windy, cold day. And um, I opened the door to two women standing there, looking nice enough. And they, one of the, one of the women started speaking to me, um, talking about faith and, um, and her beliefs. And at a certain point, I noticed that she was holding a Bible in her hand. And it was very cold. And I was thinking, I didn't want to stay there all that long with the cold coming in. And also, I didn't want her to stay there that long because it wasn't going to go anywhere. So, <laughs> so what I said to her was, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, you know, kind of had to, had to intervene there. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, um, but I'm a Buddhist. I want you to know that I'm a Buddhist. And it was so unusual because she burst out into a beautiful smile which is not usually the case in these kinds of situations. A beautiful smile. And she said, oh, your neighbor is a Buddhist too. <laughs> and I actually do live on a street where there do happen to be a number of Buddhists. But it's, it's <laughs> so I was feeling sorry for her going down the street and finding this out, you know. But it was also such an incredibly beautiful, unusual encounter in that she was delighted with me and I was delighted with her. You know, there was such open-heartedness there because there was an immediate letting go and, at least in the moment, an appreciation of differences. This is what I'd like to speak about tonight. I'd like to explore the question of what is faith because this is not the usual kind of encounter that we find ourselves in. Um, I, have to, I have to say that when this happened, when I was going back up the stairs, I had a memory of my father um, inviting Jehovah's Witnesses in. And he's um, Jewish and secular uh, Jewish, and um, he's just was, is very kind of extroverted. So we'd have them... <laughs> have them in to have somebody to talk to and <laughs> give them tea and they'd always come back and they'd always think they were just there you know they were so close to converting him and we all knew that you know there was no chance in the whole entire world but this word faith is a word that is used a lot these days it's very common to hear this word a lot when we read and when we listen to speeches and just seems to be in our culture quite a bit in the world. Oftentimes affiliated with different religious beliefs and obviously these beliefs often collide. Now the Buddhist's definition of faith is really different than the way we usually hear it and the way it's usually meant when we read it in the paper. It's this word called sadha in the Pali language. And sadha certainly is sometimes translated as faith, 
but it also can be translated as trust or as confidence or as devotion. A phrase that this word can be translated into is to place the heart upon or to hand one's heart over to. And I like these these, um, kinds of interpretations, translations. It's an inner quality that unfolds and evolves through observation and through investigation. And it changes as our experiences change. This is our understanding in this practice, is that it's not like we have to start off with a huge degree of faith or we're sunk. It's something that evolves as our experiences support the truth of things. So in experiencing, whatever our experiences are, our faith comes out of that. It is the foundation of the whole practice. And this is why it is so important. Because out of the seed of faith really truly does come the tree of wisdom. And how this operates in a more concrete, unpoetic way is that if there is some degree of faith, any degree of faith, a moment of faith, out of that there is the faith to turn towards the present moment. You know, and that's where effort comes in. So is, there is the faith to, for there to be some effort. Faith leads into effort. If there isn't any faith, then there actually isn't any effort. And then the effort that we're interested in is the effort to turn towards the here and now. And this is mindfulness. You know, it's, so it's the effort to be mindfulness. So out of faith comes effort. The effort is the effort to be mindful, the effort to be present. And then with mindfulness, there is a sustaining of that mindfulness, which is samadhi, or steadiness of heart, fullness of heart, sometimes called concentration or focus of attention. And then it's mindfulness and samadhi together that bring about wisdom. You know, so out of faith comes effort, out of effort comes mindfulness. Mindfulness and wisdom together bring about wisdom. There is the emergence of wisdom through observation and sustaining that observation. But initially, it comes about through faith. There's a big difference between faith and belief. The Buddha said many times, ehipasiko, which means come and see. Come and see for yourself how things actually are. Now, don't, don't believe me. Don't believe anyone else. Investigate and find out for yourself the truth of things, because that's how there will really be true faith. So we're not so interested in this lineage in blind belief because of seeing blind belief as an attachment to concepts and to ideas. And seeing it to some degree as a bit of a band-aid approach to difficulties and to pain. 
You know, temporarily to have a belief to believe in something certainly can temporarily alleviate our anxiety. But it's not permanent. It's not lasting. It's sometimes seen as quite impermanent. And so what we're interested in is real faith instead of blind belief. The faith to look deeply, the kind of faith that actually can heal the wounds that we experience as human beings. So not just a a temporary Band-Aid approach, but really the faith to look at our life fully so that there is a true and lasting healing. In this practice, we are very much encouraged to question, to not just accept, but to investigate and to question. (coughs) And the Buddha had a very very familiar uh, sutra called the Kalama Sutra that I'd like to read to you. The Buddha once visited a small town called Kesiputta, in the kingdom of Kosala. The inhabitants of this town were known by the common name Kalama. When they heard that the Buddha was in their town, the Kalamas paid him a visit and told him, Sir, there are some recluses and brahmanas who visit Keseputta. They explain and illumine only their own doctrines and despise, condemn, and spurn others' doctrines. Then other recluses come, And they, too, in their turn, explain and illumine only their own doctrines and despise, condemn, and spurn the doctrines of others. But for us, we have always doubt and perplexity as to who among these venerable recluses and brahmanas spoke the truth and who spoke falsehood. And the Buddha gave them this advice. Yes, Kalamas, it is proper that you have doubt, that you have perplexity. For a doubt has arisen in a matter that is doubtful. Now look you, Kalamas, do not be led by reports or tradition or hearsay. Do not be led by the authority of religious texts, nor by mere logic or inference, nor by considering appearances, nor by the delight in speculative opinions, nor by seeming possibilities, nor by the idea, this is our teacher. But, O Kalamas, when you know for yourselves that certain things are wholesome and lead to happiness, then are are wholesome and lead to happiness, accept them and follow them. When you notice that for yourself that certain things are unwholesome, then give them up, let them go. And the wholesome is that which leads to happiness. The unwholesome is that which is fragmented and does not lead us where we want to go. The Buddhist teaching is based on one thing and one thing only, which is suffering and the end of suffering. So it's not based on needing to accept or believe what you may not want to accept or believe. It's finding out for yourself what leads to suffering and what leads away from suffering to reject and to let go when the torments of heart, the unwholesome is being encouraged and our suffering is being compounded, and to embrace when the wholesome, the whole, that which 
is happiness and also leads to happiness is present, to delight in this and to encourage it. And it's just such a, such a great guide in our life instead of relying upon concepts and ideas and beliefs. Real faith is something that is actually quite quiet. It's not defensive. It's not as if we have to convince anybody that we have the way and that another person does not. We don't even have to convince ourselves that we have the way. No. Really what we're asked to do is to observe and to rest upon that which can truly sustain us. So it's not the faith that things will work out the way I want them to in a conditioned kind of way. Because we don't know how things will work out. In this world of conditions, we can't plan and say, if I believe this, then this will be the result. It's not hope. It's not expectations. And I wanted to read you something by Thich Nhat Hanh about hope. It's actually entitled, Hope as an Obstacle. Hope is important because it can make the present moment less difficult to bear. If we believe that tomorrow will be better, we can bear a hardship today. But that is the most that hope can do for us, to make some hardship lighter. When I think deeply about the nature of hope, I see something tragic. Since we cling to our hope in the future, we do not focus our energies and capabilities on the present moment. We use hope to believe that something better will happen in the future, that we will arrive at peace or the kingdom of God. Hope becomes a kind of obstacle. If you can refrain from hoping, you can bring yourself entirely into the present moment and discover the joy that is already here. Enlightenment, peace, and joy will not be granted by someone else. The well is within us. And if we dig deeply in the present moment, the water will spring forth. We must go back to the present moment in order to be really alive. When we practice conscious breathing, we practice going back to the present moment where everything is happening. Western civilization places so much emphasis on the idea of hope that we sacrifice the present moment. Hope is for the future. It cannot help us discover joy, peace, or enlightenment in the present moment. I do not mean that you should not have hope, but that hope is not enough. Hope can create an obstacle for you, and if you dwell in the energy of hope, you will not bring yourself back entirely into the present moment. If you rechannel those energies into being aware of what is going on in the present moment, you will be able to make a breakthrough and discover joy and peace right in the present moment, inside of yourself and all around you. The faith that develops through the practice is the faith that everything is workable, that there's always a way to find a way to practice with the situation that we are in. It's faith in the indestructibility of the heart. 
It's faith in our own inner resources. It's faith in the transformational power of awareness. It's faith that there is a path, that freedom does exist and is possible. It's sensing the non-material. To go back to this definition or translation of faith to hand one's heart over. You know, what are we handing our hearts over to? And this is a very um, profound question to contemplate. What are we handing our hearts over to? Is it worth it? Is what we're handing our hearts over to worth it? What do we put our faith in? Does what we put our faith in bring lasting happiness? in this particular way and lineage. We've been taking refuge, in a sense, in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha at the end of the evening, chanting. And our faith, in a way of speaking, is taking refuge in the possibility of freedom within, which is another way of talking about finding faith in the Buddha, you know, so the Buddha within. So another way of putting this is um, a sense of faith in ourselves, in our own capability and possibility of awakening. We find faith in the Dharma, and the Dharma means the truth of things, how things actually are, not how we pretend things are at times, or hope things are at times. But we place our faith in the reality of things. And another way of speaking about this is that we place our faith in the here and now, in the present moment. We also place our faith in what is called sangha, which means those who have come before us, who have been on this path and have woken up. And this lineage, of course, goes back 2,500 years. So that's a lot of beings who have come before us. But it also includes Dharma friends, you know, friends who are interested in these things, and really having a sense of faith in Dharma friendship. It includes guides and teachers as well. Faith has to be coupled with wisdom, or else it's problematic. We can have faith that is without wisdom and is without energy. And in this kind of faith, nothing actually changes. There's no real transformation that can take place. And sometimes we find ourselves just lost in superstition. I'll read you a little story here. God has many names, a guru told her disciple. And one of these is Rama. If you see God in everything, then you will be safe wherever you go. So the disciple traveled, and everywhere she went, she recited, Ram, Ram, to keep herself safe. One day she came to a village that was being terrorized by a mad elephant who would rampage through the streets regularly. When the villagers warned the disciple that the elephant had been heard nearby, the disciple was not concerned. 
My guru told me only to recognize God in everything and I will be safe, she answered. But the villagers persisted, insisting that it was very dangerous to go out when the elephant was around. This elephant is God and I am God, so why should I be afraid, thought the disciple, and she went right out into the street. The elephant, seeing a woman in the middle of the street, charged right at her. Watch out, the villagers cried. And even as the disciple thought, I am God and you are God, the mad elephant picked her up and dashed her to the side of the road, nearly killing her. After a long convalescence, the disciple returned to her guru to tell the story and complain. You told me to see... (laughs) Very familiar. (laughs) You told me to see Rama in everything and I would be safe. And now look at me. Oh, my disciple, replied the guru, you were right to see God in yourself and in the elephant. But why, she went on, did you fail to recognize God warning you in the voice of the villagers? (laughs) Hmm. Faith that has a lot of energy to it and has absolutely no energy, is, no wisdom, is, is much more dangerous, though. Much more dangerous than just faith that doesn't have energy. When there is energy, but there isn't wisdom, it actually can be quite dangerous. As we know, it can give rise to intolerance. And it really comes from an unacknowledged fear and anxiety. Now, and one example is following people who have power but don't have much integrity. I won't mention any names. And <laughs> it is possible to have faith in a person like this. And this person can have really a great deal of faith in their own vision. So it's kind of compelling to follow them. And yet, without this person having um, a real sense of wisdom and integrity, it's really quite a dangerous situation. It's kind of when there's heat without any light, or power without understanding. And we always need the illuminating light of understanding. We can't do without it. Only wisdom can teach us what is worth believing in, what is worth following. Now, doubt can be, of course, quite healthy and quite wholesome. We don't like doubt, but it can actually be a really good thing. And there are two kinds of doubt that we might need to know about. You know, the Buddha did say that many things are doubtful. I just read this in the Kalama Sutra. Many things are doubtful. And there can be a kind of intelligence found in doubt. So it's not as if we want to be naive. We do want to find the intelligence that is present in doubt. Many years ago, after my first three-month retreat, which I sat here, I came out and I was walking in the streets of Cambridge. I was by myself. And guess what I heard for the whole three months of the retreat? The same thing that Christina and I are saying, let go, let go, let go. So I was walking down the street and I had not been home very long. And I was walking, you know, practicing walking meditation down the street. And all of a sudden, a big person, man, came out of a a street that I hadn't noticed very, very fast. 
And I was just aware, you know, seeing, seeing, basically. And this person ran towards me and, surprisingly enough, did not veer away and ran up to me and started hitting me and started yelling, let go, let go. (laughs) Now, this was very quick in my mind, but very vivid. I thought to myself, let go, let go. What does he want me to let go of? Let go of greed? Let go of... Aversion? You know, let go of delusion? What am I supposed to let go of? And so meanwhile, I'm holding my pocketbook to my chest, you know, kind of for dear life, because of course I was scared. But let go, I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea what he wanted me to let go of, of course, was my pocketbook. (laughs) This is, you know, I really, in a way had the thought maybe he's a bodhisattva coming to to teach me in some very unexpected way. But no, this would have been a healthy doubt to have. This is called healthy doubt. And I'll just tell you the end of the story so I don't kind of just hang you up there where I'm just getting beaten on and, you know, holding my pocketbook. I screamed so loudly that my throat was actually sore for the next few days. And Um, Ever since then, I've had the thought, you know, I can really scream loudly if I need to, because it was such a good example then. And what happened is tons and tons of people came out of the apartment building. And, you know, this is Cambridge, so, um, you know, sometimes people might come out, sometimes people might not come out. But I think my scream was just so shocking that tons of people flooded out of the apartment building, and someone was trying to give me southern comfort, and (laughs) somebody else was telling me I should breathe, you know? (laughs) Things like that. No, he did not get the pocketbook, because I screamed so loudly that he got scared, and he took off. Yeah. I find when I realized what was going on, I did throw the pocketbook down. It wasn't that bad. But he had left by that time. (laughs) There is another kind of doubt, which might be called big doubt. And big doubt means the mystery of things. It means something very beautiful and and very mysterious. Kind of knowing that we don't know and not needing to know, not having to know. And instead of assuming that we know, really continuing to ask questions. And there's, there's quite you know, wonderful meditative questions that we can ask. We can ask, what is this? We can ask, who am I? Our questions evolve as we practice. Our questions come to light as we practice. We can bring what Ajahn Sumedho calls an affectionate curiosity to our life. So we're not thinking that we have to know, but we're really kind of amazed at this mystery of body and mind and world that we live in. Now, kind of, I guess maybe one might say, living in a sense of wonder and, and surprise allowing ourselves to be surprised. And this kind of doubt is enlivening. This kind of doubt is essential and necessary on a path of awakening. 
There are three kinds of, of doubt I want to mention that are part of this practice. The first kind is called initial doubt or preliminary. I'm sorry, initial faith or preliminary faith. And this is based on inspiration. You know, we hear an inspiring talk and it gets us to look in a different way or begin a different kind of path. Or something really difficult happens in our life and we think we need to do something differently. And so we we begin to practice in some way. And this is an initial leap of faith. You know, we don't know. We've heard a good talk. Um, Maybe we've had contact with someone that seems to be um, inspiring to us or interesting to us. You know, and so we take a chance. We just take a chance and we take a bit of a leap of faith. And this initial leap of faith, this preliminary faith, this initial faith is really why all of us began. It's why all of us are here. It's why we're not all at the movies right now or doing something other than sitting and walking all day. It's because we know in some way. It's like when the light bulb goes on and we know that this is a good idea. But it's, it's just what gets us going. It's just preliminary. It's just what gets us started. The second kind of faith is called verified faith. And this faith is a growing confidence that is born out of our own experience. So this is very, very different than what gets us started. You know, this kind of, we're verifying our faith. It's stable. It's not as dependent on events and on conditions. And it's really where the real work in practice comes in because we are being invited to take leap after leap after leap after leap. You know, in other words, with our resistance that we may have noticed with our times when we don't want to practice, in our times when we really don't want to be present and mindful and would rather do anything else but, that's where leap after leap after leap takes place. In a sense, you could say a day here is, you know, 10,000 leaps over and over again are happening in verifying our faith. And it's the only way that faith really stabilizes itself is if we're willing to take that leap, to risk over and over again, to risk being mindful over and over again, and take a leap. And again, I want to emphasize, it's not like one grand leap, which might be handy but doesn't work. It's many, many, many leaps. In a given minute, there can be a number of different leaps. You know, the more leaps, the better, is really kind of the point of this. Because the more we leap, the the more we are leaving behind our conditioning and our patterns and our habits. We're kind of leaping out of habit. You know, we're, we're leaping out of our patterns into something that is new, that we can't know. And that's why it's a leap, is because we can't know in the leaping. And this is actually where faith comes in. In taking leap after leap after leap after leap after leap, eventually what 
happens is that our faith becomes unshakable. No one and nothing can shake us from it. And this is very different. Now, sometimes we can think, it's very easy to think our faith is unshakable when nothing much is happening in our life. You know, when nothing difficult is happening, times when everything seems to be pretty okay, we can think our faith is shakable during those times. So we really need to, you know, test our faith and and not come to conclusions, but just allow it to develop and evolve in its own way and in its own time. Not to take it on as an attainment, you know, now I have great faith, but to just just be very kind of quiet about it, I think. Because with unshakable faith, the issue of faith completely dissolves. It becomes a non-issue in our life. This is when faith is totally unshakable. Now, I want to say just a little bit about the process of practice. And I guess this is just something I've observed through the years with a number of different people. Um, you know, when, when, when we begin this practice as beginners, there's a couple of different things that can happen. One is that we can have a bit of a honeymoon phase where everything is just fantastic and we're so thrilled. You know, this phase can last for one minute or it can last for quite a while. It can last for, you know, sometimes, sometimes up to a year where um, everything is just fantastic and inspiring and, and just wonderful. Or the opposite can be true, where it's just, in beginning, extraordinarily hard work from moment to moment. And there is basically a moment of restlessness followed by a moment of sleepiness, followed by a moment of restlessness, followed by a moment of sleepiness. I always have a lot of admiration when people continue through this. I mean, this was actually my experience because I did not get a honeymoon. But I'm always inspired when I notice um, people continuing through this because it is such, it is so difficult at times. As beginners, there can be either very low aspirations, like coming to the practice with the aspiration to lower one's blood pressure, which of course is fine, not a problem, but it is the least that is going to happen if one continues to practice. You know, stress reduction is the very least that one can aspire to. You know, so I would just say low aspirations or grandiose expectations. You know, we, we are practicing for just a very short amount of time and we think, well, why aren't I experiencing what I've read about? You know, I mean, we, we just kind of get, have these ideas that, um, which don't match the books that we've read and we kind of have to reorient ourselves in this phase. I know for me, in the beginning of practice, and for certainly first few years of practice, there was a great degree of despair and a great degree of doubt. And when I was on retreat, there was struggle. And when I was in my daily life, there was struggle. However, what I noticed was that although being on retreat was often quite a struggle, every time I left, there was kind of a, a sense of newfound grace and newfound dignity and newfound calm that always surprised me. I mean, certainly surprised my family, 
but <laughs> but really, really surprised me as well. It was it was really something that was in spite of myself, you know, that was a surprise. So you may notice this and know this to be true for you as well. There's also, after this beginner phase, and I don't want to go into years here because this can be any amount of years, but at some point, after we have really decided to take this practice on and we're no longer flirting with it, and we have some sense that this is, this is a good practice for us, at some point or another, there is usually a crisis of faith that occurs. And it can be loud, you know, it can be a loud crisis where everybody knows about it. Or it can be really quiet, where you just kind of creep away and nobody knows about it but you. you know? So it can, it can manifest itself or express itself in, in different ways. But it's, it's oftentimes a time when we're just going through the motions in practice. You know, when we feel like we've heard it all already. We've already heard it all. The talks are, you know, sometimes they're okay, but they're kind of dry. You know, they're not really penetrating. Um, and, it, and it's such an interesting kind of thing because the instructions, as you know, are, are quite simple in this practice. We find a lot of different ways to say be present, be aware, be awake. But when you hear this as a beginner, um, it means something totally different than after we've been practicing for many years. And it's the same thing with hearing the Dharma. You know, when you hear it as a beginner, oh, it's interesting, it's new, it's this, it's that. And then going through this crisis of faith time, um, it's, it doesn't have that same kind of ring to it, that same kind of, it doesn't hold that same kind of interest. And then after moving through this crisis of faith in some way or another, whether it's a little louder, or whether it's very, very quiet, we can hear the words, be present, and it's just absolutely, um, it's like the first time that we've ever heard it. Now, we can hear all the teachings, but it's every single time like the first time that we've heard it. Same thing that we've heard over and over again in many different ways for many different years, and yet, after moving through this crisis of faith, it's as if it's always utterly new, always utterly fresh. And again, as if we have never heard it before. Because in a sense, we haven't, because we know it's a new moment. So how could we have heard it before? You know, it's only when we think we can repeat the moment that we think we've heard something before. But when we're fresh and awake and here, in the here and now, it's not possible to ever have heard anything before. And so when we hear something that is authentic and the truth of things, and we know it resonates in our heart in the deepest of possible ways, you know, after we've moved through this kind of phase, um, there's a, an openness and a sensitivity and a joy in hearing whatever we hear, even if it's the simplest of dharmic instructions. It's so important when we 
are moving through something like this when we can't see that much has changed or we can't see that enough has changed. You know, perhaps we see that something has changed that's been important for us, but it's not enough. You know, we really feel very strongly that not enough has changed. It's really important to recognize that this is a phase. It's not an end point. It's just a natural, inevitable part of the process of deepening our faith. It's really on the way to developing an unshakable faith. It's on the way to knowing for oneself the indestructibility of the heart. So it's quite important that we relate to this as a phase rather than as an an endpoint. How do we nourish and cultivate wise faith? How do we move through this vast middle phase of the practice? One way is to practice through thick and thin, to practice when things are going great and to practice when things are going very poorly, to practice when we feel really happy and to practice when we feel really sad, to practice when we feel healthy and to practice when we feel sick. To practice when the conditions in our life, you know, for maybe that one moment, are seemingly, you know, perfect, if that ever happens, or as, as good as they can be. And to practice when the conditions in our life are not good at all. You know, to practice when we like ourselves and to practice when we can't stand ourselves. So to practice through thick and thin. Another way to nourish and cultivate wise faith is to be aware of what we are grateful to because gratitude points to our faith. In other words, whenever we're grateful, we know we have faith in something. So it's a way to kind of point to our faith when we don't even know that it's there. Instead of orienting ourselves towards faith, we can orient ourselves towards gratitude. And it's, it's sometimes as a way to guide us to the faith that is indeed there within us. Another way is to be mindful of difficult emotions. Because with difficult emotions, you may notice that doubt often follows. You know, when we have a difficult emotion, such as despair, or such as anger, or such as resentment, or such as a lot of aversion, or a lot of longing. When we have difficult emotions occurring, and particularly so for despair, but with other emotions as well, oftentimes we will notice that doubt follows, is, is hanging on to, is tagging along with the difficult emotion. So the question is, can we be aware that a difficult emotion is happening right here and right now? Instead of coming to conclusions about how things are, simply because a difficult emotion is occurring. You know, I can't do this. This is the wrong path for me. Um, I'm not getting anywhere. Um, I'm not able to do this. Maybe it's possible for others, but I'm not able to do this. Our mind just spinning into kind of sometimes an existential kind of doubt. 
because there has been an emotion that we haven't paid attention to. So we want to be mindful of difficult emotions, and we also want to be mindful of thoughts of doubt and thoughts that have to do with coming to conclusions, really not allowing our minds to spin out, but instead being being aware. Of course, practicing within a community is another way to nourish and cultivate wise faith. When we have friends that practice, that are interested in these things, sometimes this can sustain us through really difficult times. I know for me, at a certain point, I had this crisis of faith, and maybe the only reason I continued is because I really liked my friends. You know, I wanted to still hang around the people I was with. And um, the only way to do that would be to continue to practice. So it was a sustaining um, of the practice through faith in friends. And this is, this is also um, one of the functions of a teacher, you know, to kind of um, help one through that phase and to point out that it really is just a phase. Sometimes I, I want to have um, psychic baby pictures of people. In other words, like um, you know, baby pictures of when one began to practice. However, the the um, the age doesn't matter. But you know, when one begins to practice, the the picture of that, you know, kind of the psychic picture, and then seeing how much change takes place through the years. That sometimes it's very difficult to see oneself. So in other words, that teach the teacher as a mirror of the beauty that is beginning to reveal itself. Sometimes it can be seen in the sitting, you know, that, that the person feels just quite inwardly chaotic and like nothing much has changed at all. And yet it can be seen, this kind of visible presence of stillness can be seen at times. And this is somewhat of what I mean by in spite of ourselves. You know, this presence of stillness is so obvious. At the same time, a great deal of agitation is happening within. And so just it's another way to reflect the truth of things. The fact that change has indeed taken place. The deepening of faith has to do with our willingness to embrace. It has to do with the willingness to embrace from moment to moment our life as it is. Our conditioning is very, very powerful, and we do need to respect and honor the great power of conditioning so that we aren't overly personalizing it or dismayed when we find that things are the way that they are. Our conditioning is to move away and to push away And instead, what nourishes our faith is getting close to the here and now, being intimate in our lives, being in our lives, instead of describing and commenting and evaluating and assessing how our life is from a conceptual point of view. Meditation is connection. Whatever the object may be, the object is not that important. Meditation is connection, and it's in sustaining connectedness that we see things differently, that we actually see things clearly. 
in a way that we haven't been able to see them before. Of course, metta and inner acceptance is very helpful, nourishes our faith as well. Most of us do begin, probably all of us do begin with some degree of doubt, if not a great amount of doubt. We have doubt in the practice. We have doubt in the possibility of freedom. And most of all, we have doubt in ourselves. This is natural and inevitable. But instead of having faith in our doubt, we have a huge amount of faith in our doubt. Is it possible to doubt our doubt? (laughs) My eyebrows are going up and down. You can't see them here. Is it possible to doubt our doubt? Now, is it possible instead to have doubt in the harassing voices, the voices that are saying, you should already be this or that? You should already have experienced this. You should already be peaceful. What's wrong with you? Now, instead of believing these harassing voices, seeing if we can meet our doubt with awareness, meeting the moment without flinching and without cringing, nourishes our faith. Listening inwardly leads to the deepening of faith. And just to end with a a poem by Anna Akhmatova. Everything is plundered, betrayed, sold. Death's great black wing scrapes the air. Misery gnaws to the bone. Why then do we not despair? By day, from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep, transparent skies glitter with new galaxies, and the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses, something not known to anyone at all, but wild in our breast for centuries. May all beings know deep faith within themselves. May all beings awaken into freedom May all beings live in love and in compassion. Let's just take a moment and sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.